Church, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to Psalm 136. Psalm 136. As we continue to construct, so to speak, a model for prayer, we arrive today at the subject of thanksgiving. And before anybody that's familiar interjects, and fairly, fairly, I'll admit that Jesus' prayer, which we've used as a guide to this point, doesn't contain the language of thanksgiving. Let me provide you with a few texts in support of this component before explaining why I believe thanksgiving is part and parcel of the Lord's Prayer. But, as I said first, a text explicitly calling for thanksgiving in prayer. And it's one of my favorites, if not my all-time favorite, if one can have such a text in God's Word. But does anybody want to hazard a guess as to what that reference might be? <laughs> Philippians 4, 4 through 7. If you've received a text message or an email from me, then I doubt that was tricky. Uh, Philippians 4, 4 through 7. It's where Paul instructs the church to rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Did you catch it? It's not hard, right? By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, everything, everything is to be spoken with thanksgiving. In other words, every aspect of our lives as Christians ought to be marked by prayer and petition, which ought to be marked by thanksgiving, where thanksgiving, church, is far more than simply expressing gratitude for gifts received, as we'll see in just a moment as I'll explain. But first, or rather second, as we move forward, how about a second text in support of thanksgiving? First Thessalonians 5, 16, 17, where there Paul urges the Thessalonian church to be joyful always, to pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So expressing the same sentiment that we just heard voiced in Philippians 4. Paul here in Thessalonians exhorts the church to continual prayer marked by thanksgiving. A third text. Let's look at Ephesians 5, verse 19 through 20, where the apostle there reminds the Ephesians to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing as we've just done. Make music in your heart to the Lord always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then a fourth, just because I'm nice like that. Colossians 3, 17, which reads, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So, four texts. Four commands or, or exhortations, if you will, to prayer in which the words spoken are to be so with thanksgiving or in thanksgiving. But we asked, what about the Lord's Prayer? What about the Lord's Prayer? We, we, we're about to study together Psalm 136, a song or an Old Testament prayer of thanksgiving, if you will. And, it, and we've already seen four New Testament references calling for thanksgiving in prayer, but there are others, just in case there were those concerned. But as I said earlier, where, what about the Lord's Prayer? Jesus' prayer, the model prayer, so to speak. And as I said 
As I said earlier, while that word thanksgiving is not mentioned, I believe the sentiment is still expressed. And here's why. Thanksgiving is not simply expressing gratitude for things received. At least that's not how it's conveyed in the scriptures. And let me say that again. Thanksgiving is not simply expressing gratitude for things received. That's not how it's conveyed in the scripture. Now, you or I may view it in this light, but in the scriptures, thanksgiving is a richer sentiment involving the deeper, the more personal realization of dependency. As one commentator words it, thanksgiving does not mean to say thank you in advance for gifts to be received. It is the absolutely basic posture of the believer and the proper context for petitioning God. In other words, thanksgiving is a recognition of God's sovereignty, his, his reign over all, and our complete and utter inability to do anything for ourselves. Now, does this include verbal expressions of appreciation for things received from God's hand? Absolutely. Absolutely it does. But it's also, as you can see and as we will see, far, far more. So, with that in mind, Consider Christ's model prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I would like to believe that a posture of dependency upon God, our Father, whose kingdom we're asking will come on earth as it is in heaven is a given. But just in case you missed it, Jesus adds, give us today our daily bread. Now, I can't see how this request for daily sustenance can be viewed in any other light than that of thankful recognition that God and God alone can and will supply all our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Nor... Can it be voiced from any other posture but that of total dependence upon our Father in heaven? So, with that said, and with the components of praise followed by confession in prayer previously established, if you've been with us, I invite you to listen as I pray this prayer of thanksgiving contained in Psalm 136. So would you pray with me? We give thanks to the Lord for He's good. His love endures forever. We give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. We give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders. His love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens. His love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters. His love endures forever. Who made the great lights. His love endures forever. The sun to govern the day. His love endures forever. The moon and stars to govern the night. His love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. His love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them. His love endures forever. With a mighty hand and outstretched arm, his love endures forever. 
to him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his love endures forever. And brought Israel through the midst of it, his love endures forever. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea, his love endures forever. To him who led his people through the desert, his love endures forever. Who struck down great kings, his love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, his love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, his love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, his love endures forever. And gave their land as an inheritance, his love endures forever. An inheritance to his servant Israel, his love endures forever. To the one who remembered us in our lowest state, his love endures forever. And freed us from our enemies, his love endures forever. And who gives food to every creature, his love endures forever. Give thanks, we give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. Amen. In the 70s, maybe even as early as the 60s, there was a form of worship song that following the musical developments of the era began to feature greater and greater repetition. And this type of tautology was, wasn't novel to Christian choral composition as is evidenced by our psalm here today, nor was it isolated to these two periods, the recent past and that of the Old Testament. In fact, the great British Baptist, Charles Spurgeon, noted at the end of the 19th century, a veritable charm in poetry is repetition, or marked reiteration. When the poet touches upon some important theme which illuminates his soul and kindles his noble passions to a flame, in these moments he's apt to dwell on it with enthusiasm, constrained to pursue it with avidity, to follow it up with feeling and echo it over and over again with stronger and yet stronger emotion. Repetition's helpful. However, as I'm sure you've sensed it before, at times it can be tedious, leaving us to wonder if the composer or the writer dependent was just running out of things to say. And so he went with, whoa, 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 yeah, whoa, whoa, which was featured in a recent worship song offering entitled No Reason to Hide, which, while beginning, to be fair, with some great doctrinal truths and set to a catchy tune, ends with a refrain of over a minute consisting of nothing more than, whoa, 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 leading you as the listener to think, wow, that's a lot of woes. The point is, church, repetition isn't always bad. Neither is it a novelty at the heart of our recent so-called worship wars. Rather, as evidenced here at the heart of, 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 of this psalm of thanksgiving, Psalm 136, I believe that it serves the glorious purpose of slowing us down. We who in a Western world are always in a rush. It slows us down and it's forcing us to, to chew on, so to speak, the reality of God's enduring eternal or steadfast love rather than skipping over a truth at the heart of God. For as John reveals to us in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 8, God is what? Love. 
And I'm certain that as we prayed Psalm 136 and as Melinda referenced the other psalm prior to our singing earlier, that if there is a phrase you will recall come the end of our time together this morning, it will be, His love endures forever. The reason why our psalmist calls for us to give thanks to the Lord for His goodness, His love endures forever. And to safeguard safeguard us from empty such expressions or platitudes, he also provides specific manifestations of the Lord's goodness in his enduring love. Because if you ever had the experience of, of interacting with somebody that maybe you haven't seen in a while, who's thanking you for something that you gave them, maybe it was a movie, maybe it was a book, a gift that you sent to them, and, and so you ask, following their thanks, well, have you watched it? Did you read it? What did you think? And, and at that point, they kind of, uh hem and haw, and then confess, well, actually, no, I, I haven't. It kind of takes away from the sincerity of their thanks, doesn't it? Because if they haven't actually read it, seen it, listened to it, then all they can offer you is, is appreciation of intent. They can't express fullness of gratitude for what they were given until they actually experience it. And friends, in the same way, I believe that, it, that our Thanksgiving prayers fall short when they fail to voice thanks for that we've experienced. And this is why I believe the psalmist begins by calling us to give thanks to the covenant keeper. The covenant keeper. Verse 1, our psalmist prays, gives thanks to the Lord. The Lord. Now, as I'm sure many of us, if not all of us are aware, that term Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, is the English rendering of the Old Testament term, the Hebrew, Yahweh, which was the covenant name that God gave to his people. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, as recorded in Exodus 3, he declared, I am who I am. This is who you are to say to the Israelites, has sent you. I am has sent me to you. Say to the Israelites, the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Church, in this self-revelation of his name, God reiterated his covenantal relationship to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, a people for, for whom he promised to be God, a people descended from Abraham who would be, as he referred to Abraham, as numerous as the stars in the sky, a people in the line of Isaac and Jacob, but not exclusively the bloodline. Because as the Apostle Paul later tells us in Romans 9, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. No, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. In other words, as Paul continues, it's not the natural children who are God's children. But it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. That's children born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who have confessed their sin and believed in Jesus, the promised Savior, the Messiah, the Deliverer, God pledged, would save His people from their sins. This is who Yahweh, Lord, all caps, is the covenant keeper. Do you know Him? The psalmist urges us to give thanks to the Lord. Why? For He's good. And in Exodus 34, the Lord Himself himself provided details regarding the goodness of his covenant keeping. When speaking to Moses again, he declared himself to be Yahweh, or the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger 
abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Church, when we speak of, or when we speak to God in prayer, we've got to give Him thanks as the covenant keeper. For as the covenant keeper who has promised His people compassion, pledged His patience, and, and, and affirmed His faithful love, He's worthy. He is worthy. Our God isn't like the experience of my brothers who a number of years ago waiting expectantly for Christmas gifts from their older, much more handsome and wise brother received handmade, which ought to be significant, handmade leather necklaces displaying ivory crosses that while well-intentioned, sadly reflected the artistry of their older, much less gifted, while still well-intentioned brother. The point was my brother's gifts were pretty lame. They came from a heart that was desperate to provide something cool, but it bombed. It bombed. And they would remind me of that in the years that followed. Don't go with handmade. Just buy us something that someone else has used his hands to make because yours are just not gifted to that end. But church, the point is, what we receive from God's hands, the fingers that fashion the heavens, that place the stars in the sky, God is worthy. And the psalmist reiterates that. Verse 2, when he says, give thanks to who? The God of gods. And then verse 3, the Lord of lords. Both of these references, again, drawn from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 10, when speaking to Moses, there following Israel's horrific moral and spiritual failure, there when they worship the golden calf, here God reminds him in Deuteronomy 10 that he set his affections on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations on earth, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, he says. So remove all the, the muck that has surrounded the, the, the heart that God had given you to love and re in relationship with me. Don't be stiff-necked any longer. Don't be stubborn. Why? For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. Church, this is who God is. And this is how he has promised or how he has covenanted to deal with his people, those upon whom he has set his affections, who he chose from among the nations, those that the Apostle Paul later describes very similarly when he writes to the church in Ephesus chapter 1, he says, as being chosen in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. It's those who in love he predestined to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he's lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. This, this is God, the covenant keeper, who is good and whose love endures forever. Do you daily, do you continually give him thanks in prayer? Our psalmist calls us to give thanks to the covenant keeper, who is also our creator. Our creator, in verses 4 through 9, we're entreated to consider the Lord as the only wise God, whose work brought the world into existence. And thus, 
The call is to give thanks to him who alone does great wonders, who by his understanding made the heavens, who spread out the earth upon the waters, who made the great lights, the sun to govern the day, the moon and stars to govern the night. It says, creator, that God reveals his wisdom. Because as the writer of Proverbs, Solomon tells us in chapter 3, verse 19, by wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the deeps were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. And just for the sake of clarity, church here, wisdom isn't the accumulation of facts, much like we often conceive it to be. It's the sum of all knowing. In other words, in these references here to wisdom by the psalmist, what's being described is an attribute of who God is. And therefore, it is not something that you or I will ever possess in its entirety. As Solomon reveals, the fear of the Lord, chapter 1, verse 7, is the beginning, the beginning of wisdom. As we created beings pursue or follow our creator who alone is wise, we come to reflect the wisdom of God, but we'll never be as God is, for he is holy. He is other than his creation. He's the creator. When you pray, do you give thanks to the Lord, the creator, the only wise God whose wisdom is displayed in all that he's made? And, and does this demonstration of wisdom fuel your pursuit of understanding? Meaning, are you motivated to use your mind to better know God as he's revealed himself in the world in general, but in his word specific? Or do you view education and the use of our minds as nothing more than a a secularly hijacked, self-serving intellectual exercise. For the psalmist, creation is a revelation of God's wisdom, displayed in a manner by which the material universe came to be in its present condition. Now, that said, as we read this text, we've got to be careful not to make the mistake of formalizing the process that's described here and attempting to derive from the psalmist's words an apology for creation, meaning... The psalmist here isn't speaking literally or even scientifically about how the cosmos came to be. Rather, I believe the writer is waxing poetically. That he's inviting we Christians to delight in our environment, known to us as no mere mechanism, but rather it's a work of steadfast love. So friends, as you pray, do you take time to thank God, the creator, for, for the world in which you live? Looking out of my office window, I've got this view of the pavilion and it stretches through the field all the way to the tree line. And while my view hasn't changed over the past year, what I've seen has changed daily. I've watched corn grow, birds bathe in the water that collects when it rains between the office and the pavilion that threatens to flood but hasn't yet. I've seen foxes dig holes, buzzards feast, a vixen carry kits around the field. I've seen a groundhog sunbathe, guys cutting grass wander past my window, and trespassers make a journey across the field for no other reason that I can tell them the expedience that our field provides for them. Now, for those faces showing consternation, I do work. I don't spend all my time staring out the window, making a list of the things that are unique and being seen. But the point the point is, we have so much to thank God for in the creation that is all around us. So much. Do you take the time to do so? 
Or are your prayers offered up more like a baton pass in a relay race? And you've got to get it out of your hand before you cross the line or you'll be disqualified. Richard Foster, in his book entitled Prayer, describes it thus as nothing more than an ongoing and growing love relationship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Nothing more than an ongoing and growing love relationship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. While there's certainly more that I would like to add, we would likely add to complete Foster's definition, he makes a point that I feel is fitting here. And that regards time. A love relationship takes time, doesn't it? Praying prayers of thanksgiving, if they are sincere take time. They take time. Do you prayerfully give thanks to your covenant keeper and creator God? The psalmist urges us to. He also calls for us to give thanks to our rescuer and deliverer. Our rescuer and deliverer. Verses 10 all the way through 22 summarize the Lord's rescue of Israel from Egypt, followed then by his deliverance of his people into the promised land. Now each statement followed, as we've heard and noted by the refrain, his love endures forever, poignantly portrays God's power experienced by his people in their miraculous escape from Pharaoh's clutches, followed by the receipt of the land of Canaan. Now, for those who remember and are familiar, Sion, the name of the king, and Og were the first kings to fall to Israel's new generation after their sin incurred 40 years of wandering in the desert. And their story recounted in Numbers 21 and then in Deuteronomy chapter 2, is followed shortly by Israel's crossing the Jordan to take possession of the land. And friends, in this fulfilled promise, the promise that was first made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15, in this fulfilled promise, God revealed himself to be his people's rescuer as he freed them from slavery in Egypt. But he didn't stop there, did he? as he then delivered them to the promised land. And church, just as God promised to rescue Israel from slavery and deliver them to the promised land, so too has he promised to rescue us. Only our slavery is not in the land. It's a slavery to sin. And to deliver us then into the kingdom of his son, in whom he is well pleased, whom he loves and is well pleased. God, God's dealings with Israel, as recorded in the scriptures, foreshadowed his dealings with us. God sent Moses to lead his people to freedom, a freedom plagued, as we've seen together, by Israel's physical weakness and their moral shortcomings, which served to demonstrate the depth of his people's need and the consequent strength required of the Savior. And as we've seen, if you were with us through our exhaustive journey through the judges following Israel's arrival in the promised land, things weren't any better, were they? As God sent them deliverer after deliverer after deliverer who, like Moses, continued continued to rescue Israel by God's enabling from their oppression and restore them to right relationship with God. But in every instance, the people's experience was limited by their sinfulness, and that was the point. Left to themselves, we, left to ourselves, were lost. Israel had no hope. This is why God sent his promise-fulfilling Messiah, Savior, his son, Jesus. In Christ's coming, like us in every way, only without sin, he 
Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's law on our behalf. And he then died on a cross, placed there at our, or by our hands, paying the penalty of death that our sin had incurred, was placed in the tomb for three days, after which he rose victorious. In this church, in this glorious gospel rescue and deliverance, Christ set us free from the cause of our moral cancer. He didn't simply soothe our, our spiritual symptoms. He set right the source. And now whoever confesses their sin and believes in Jesus has life full, free, with purpose and significance beginning in the moment and projected through eternity. That's something to be thankful for. So when you pray, church, do you give thanks to the Lord, your rescuer and deliverer? The psalmist calls for us to. We're to give thanks to our covenant keeper, creator, rescuer, and deliverer God, who is also our provider. Our provider. Verse 23 reads, To the one who remembered us in our lowest state, his love endures forever and frees us from our enemies. His love endures forever. And who gives food to every creature, his love endures forever. Since I believe that there are in these three verses, or in these three verses, that there is revealed God's provision and at two levels. God's provision at two levels. First of all, he provides for his own. And he does so very specifically. When God's eyes, we're told, Second Chronicles 16, 9, as God's eyes roam the earth, he sees all. And he takes special notice of those who are his. And while he knows all things, he's omniscient as we know. According to 2 Timothy 2.19, he takes special notice of those who are his. And so, regardless this morning of the details of your lowest day, Christian, whatever it might be, you can be confident that your God knows about it. Why? Because his love endures forever and you may be confident that God will free you from your enemy now this doesn't mean that God will cause your life in the now to be carefree the enemy referenced here in our psalm isn't necessarily the enemy that you might like it to be a boss who's overbearing or a frustrating life circumstance resulting from a past failure or a, a looming financial burden God may not associate or that may not be the enemy promised. What it does mean, though, is that you need not fear that enemy. For he, she, it, whatever the case, doesn't rule over you. As a child of the king, you've got nothing to fear. Why? Because he set us free. Because his love endures forever. Church, that's cause for thanksgiving. And so as provider, God takes special care of those who are his. But he also provides a general benevolence that affects every living thing. The fact that our world continues to spin, that we have oxygen and food, water enough to sustain life, that, that, that is a, a testimony to God's gracious provision. For it is not deserved, and it certainly cannot be attributed to anything that we have done to maintain it. That there is life on planet Earth, I am confident attests to God the Lord the provider and friends as, as with God's covenant keeping creating rescuing and delivering his 
provision is something we can easily overlook. At least I do. I regularly find myself frustrated by circumstance or troubled by relational tension. And rather than giving thanks to the Lord for He is good, I complain. Rather than acknowledging my place and adopting a posture of humility, I storm the throne, so to speak, and begin demanding answers of my sovereign. I behave like my heart is, or as I am at heart, a spoiled, petulant child who believes he deserves better than he's getting. And so like a disgruntled customer with which I can relate being a Western American, I approach the window, the, the cashier's desk, so to speak, and I start complaining. Can you relate? Church, we are the recipients of God's greatest gift of all, himself. And this is not a gift that you received corporately, although it is to be lived out in that setting. But Christ died for you, and he died for me. And were the you the only person to have ever been, he still would have died in your place so that you might be set free. Such is the love of our God and your experience of this love again doesn't come through corporate confession of sin and belief and acceptance of His grace, but personal. And so we each have cause for thanksgiving and fully expressing gratitude for our life's experience of God's great grace, grace displayed to us as that covenanting, keeping, covenant-keeping, creating, rescuing, delivering, and providing God of heaven who, as our psalmist concludes, loves us forever. So when you pray, do you take time to thank God for what he has done for you based upon who he has revealed himself to be? Or do you simply cut to the chase and just get to the asking? And if you spend time in thanksgiving, is it genuine? Is it authentic? Or, or do, you, do you just throw out a token word of thanks in hopes that it'll grease the palm? so to speak, and, and it will make the request, which is why you've begun praying in the first place, a little more palatable. Church, God does want us to ask of him, and we'll be looking together at this next week, and he does promise to answer. But when we fail to give thanks, I believe we demonstrate our failure to appreciate who it is we are appealing to. So may our prayer, Emmanuel, may it be fueled by praise. May our prayer be constructed on a foundation of confession and then seasoned with the Christ-exalting sense of expressed thanksgiving. Why? For His love endures forever. Amen? Would you pray with me as we close? God, we give you thanks because you are a covenant-keeping God. You promise to save and save to the uttermost those who are yours. None can snatch us from your hand, we who are your children. And as a covenant keeper, God, that gives us such confidence because our salvation rests in you, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and none can change that. God, we give you thanks, who is the creator for you made us, and we are yours. We are your people, described as the sheep of your pasture. Lord, we thank you for what you create all around us that remind us 
of who you are, and yet apart from divine revelation, we acknowledge is insufficient to save. Salvation comes by you opening eyes to the beauty of the gospel. You are our creator. And we give you thanks, our rescuer and redeemer. God, we don't deserve life in Jesus. That is what you have given us for your glory and our greatest good. And so we give you thanks. And you are our provider. Father, the fact that we are here is a testimony to the, the truth that your eyes do. Look the world over and you notice us. You care for us. God, that you would choose to, to let us know of that sensitivity by relating it to the, the, the least, the most common bird in creation, the sparrow, that you take note of that bird speaks to the love and affection that you show to we, your people, made in your image. And Lord, we thank you that our interactions with you, while lived out in a community of faith, are personal. God, we don't come to faith on the commitment of another. We come to faith when we acknowledge our sin and we confess it and we believe in Jesus. And God, you then call for us to make that commitment public, to live it out without shame because your love endures forever. Father, this morning I pray we've been encouraged and that in this coming week we will make an effort Take time to allow what you have made and what we've experienced of your great grace to drive us to thanksgiving. Lord, and if there is one here this morning that is not your child, but having heard the gospel of your grace has been stirred, or one who has and is following you but has yet to make that decision known, to stand with confidence before your people and say, I love Jesus. He is mine. And therefore, I can sing these songs of thanksgiving. I can sing about the beauty of the earth with confidence. Lord, if there's a commitment that you are moving one to make today, we ask that you would, you would spur them to that end. They might follow you faithfully in baptism and become a covenant member of this body. Lord, we trust that you are at work because this is your word. And we ask that you be the one that's glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.